Hi, this is Burning Heron. Hey, this is Melonbread. This is Kevin. Hi, this is Will Roy. This is Dole. This is Jake Cook. You're listening to episode 9 of the Green Box. This episode, we get cerebral in discussing the mechanics and narrative implications of sanity, disorders, and bond scores. Later, we talk about our personal styles and philosophies in writing and running Delta Green. At one point, Melon and I and somebody else from NATO were writing a bigger scenario where you have to track down a rogue agent. And something that came up was that there are non-DG attackers who are also going after the same character you are. And so one disadvantage they have compared to the players is that when supernatural things start happening, they have no idea how to deal with it. So they just peace out. And so something I've been thinking about is mechanically, there's no way to adapt to the unnatural except for losing your shit completely. But as a player, how do you guys decide whether or not your character is able to react well to supernatural events. Hypothetically, the game's sanity system is supposed to guide you in your role-playing decisions about how you interact with things that man was not meant to know. That's what the design, that's what the, the purpose of it is anyways. How well it fulfills that function is up to debate both in terms of whether we like certain mechanics designed for handling that and also how good you personally are or your personal philosophy for how the how your character should act in those situations. Yes, uh, you've got your temporary insanities. When a what is it? When a player suffers a loss of five cent or more, it's fight, flight, or freeze essentially. Yes, well designed mechanic, simple, easy to remember. Do you let the player choose fight, flight, or freeze, or do you assign it? I. Let them choose unless I can think of a really great thing that would happen if they chose a specific one. So the way you've run it when I've been playing with you is that if you're adapted to violence, you have to pick fight. And if you're adapted to helplessness, you have to pick submit. Yes. I think that is a is how I would how I handle it, yeah. So though it's it's quite rare because um most of the stimuli that give big enough sand damage to get a temp are violence, and helplessness rarely comes up, and if it does come up, it's rarely big enough. Although, I mean, I guess it's not the source of sand, of sand damage, it's the, the... whatever. Anyways, uh, it doesn't come up often, but yes, that's how I'd run it. I think that if I was running it just randomly, I would probably try and weight the table very heavily towards running away, because freezing basically just kills your character in a lot of these circumstances, and fighting back is often what you're going to do anyways. So I think that um, running away is the most mechanically, or is the most is the one that's most narratively interesting and the least like mechanically either cheesy or just bullshit. So that's how I would do it. I'd probably if you freeze the T Rex in Future Perfect, can't see. You. It's true, probably. But uh, I would do a D6. Probably like one is freeze. Two through five is run away, and then six is fight. But like I said before, I think that the those mechanics are fine the way they are. Uh, I think those are not the ones that Heron is talking about when he talks about how do you react to the unnatural, how do you rationalize the unnatural, how do you play a character who is adapted to violence or who has a disorder. 
Yeah, I'm more thinking of it from a role-playing perspective than a mechanical perspective. So tip, so hypothetically, the game is supposed to tell you what you're supposed to be doing. That they give you the cue card essentially. Yeah, um, I think how do you how do you play a character who's because a lot of players will look at the character creation guidelines and they'll see the damage veteran packages and they'll go adapted to violence. Wowee, that sounds great. I should pick that one, then I won't have to roll it, uh, worry about sin rolls that much. That happened to me actually once. Um, I had a player who. Uh, he's a great guy, great friend of mine, bit of a min-maxer, but it's always funny, because, you know, he min-maxes, but he also totally embraces the Delta Green, it's about the death spiral, and, you know, seeing exactly what horrible circumstances you're going to die under. So he makes this character that, uh, pumps, uh, power, and, uh, dumps charisma a little bit. Not, like, a lot. I think he had, like, eight. Uh, and then he's, because he's read a little bit of the rule book enough to know that adaptation is a thing that happens if you lose Sandy to a source, uh, without hitting your breaking point. So he's like, oh, I'm going to get myself adapted to violence. So he goes out of his way to expose himself to as many violent sand loss sources as he can. Obviously, he does get himself adapted to violence because he gets the three check marks. He goes, yes, I'm adapted. What happens now? And I'm like, all right, roll a d6. He rolls it. Six. What happens now? All right, you lose that much charisma. Oh, shit. Yeah, so the lesson here is is if, you, if you're really that gung-ho about playing a character who's adapted, you might want to buy it during care gen instead. I think the lesson here is when, when, when the handler says that an idea of yours is maybe not such a great idea, at the very least, you should look at the rulebook. That's fair. Uh, so we've got another sort of mechanical optimization versus gameplay thread going on here. But I think you're right to, to say, what are the maybe the downsides of these things that improve your character mechanically? Which is sort of, which then will circle back to what we're trying to get at, which is how do you play those characters that have those uh features to them because i think just from a mechanical perspective and i swear to god i'm going towards something that's more heroin what you care about it's quite difficult to when you have a when you have a character that has a a disorder on the character sheet and it's not something very that's got a defined effect and stands out really strongly uh in terms of gameplay or even in terms of what you know about this this disorder that your handler has gifted your character, but then, or then, if you have two or three of those of those on the character sheet, if you've got two or three disorders, you're already at the end of the life cycle, man. Not not necessarily. Um, there's what because first of all, there's ways to get disorders besides passing breaking points. Not necessarily mechanically specified, but um, I've given them out for things that happen in the game world that are like especially magical, like um, uh, getting addicted to stuff. Um, Anyways, as I was saying, uh, if you if you if you if you have one disorder or even two or three, what do you change about the way that you play that character? Especially if it's something because there's some there's some of them in there that are like amnesia, and how does how do I play a man that doesn't remember something? What hap- what happens when he gets an episode of amnesia? Does he remember the thing he forgot, or does he forget things now? And if so, then how is that not just the same thing as fugue disorder, which is also quite similar on the, in retrospect to depersonalization disorder? So, Heron, help, help us through this. Are you asking me about amnesia specifically, for instance, or about role? No, I'm asking you in general what you would do if you had a character with a handful of disorders, or even just one, and you weren't sure what that meant for how they would behave or that they were adapted to violence, or that they were um, 
had seen a bad thing. So for a disorder, I would just say that kind of thing doesn't turn off. That is, like, you don't only feel the effects. You only get mechanical penalties, I guess, when the GM says you're having an acute episode. But in terms of role-playing it, uh, that doesn't go away. If you're a depressed character, you think every plan is going to end with you with a bullet in your head, and you have to kind of drag yourself to go along with it. It sounds like you should role-play the fact that your disorder is always there, like, lurking in the back of your mind. Like, calls for a bit of, like, changing the way that you, as a person, would approach approach a problem. Yeah, I would say make it a part of your home scenes. Make it a part of the briefing. Just bring it, bring it up once in a while. Uh, and then as you get more disorders, you can sort of layer on top of them and see how they interact. Sounds like uh, the opposite of playing to lift. It's like playing to fall. <laughs> yeah, playing to cross. So perhaps it's easier, you're saying, to be a character that has these characteristics if you have other people acting to reinforce them. Yeah, that would definitely be helpful. The disorder like and in, in falling down is what makes part of Delta Green fun. So really, like, the onus has to come from the player, but it can be reinforced by other people at the table. Like, hey, dude, that doesn't sound like somebody with uh, sleep disorder. They definitely wouldn't volunteer to uh, take the first Firewatch or something like that. Will, what is the most fun disorder in Eclipse Phase? i give you a hint. It's Impulse Control Disorder. Uh, yes, yes it is. And Delta Green has a version of that called Hypergeometry Addiction. And people people think about that when they hear the name that it's just oh you got to cast a spell or whatever. But if you read the description, it's so it's, much more than that. You've got to constantly be making uh, a, a mechanical test to not push the button or to not play with the magic artifact or to not read the book. It's a it's an excuse to do all the bad stuff that you, the player, know you shouldn't be doing. And depending on the kind of person that you are and how you approach these games, it can either be a bit of a hassle because now you're, you know, a liability to the team or whatever, or it can be a lot of fun because now I'm the guy who, whether I like it or not, I have something on my character sheet telling me I'm going to interact with the thing that the GM put all the time into creating knowing full well that the players probably wouldn't use it because they're smart. And Heron, you had a couple characters like that. Uh, I think I've had... Mosin is the one that jumps out to me first. I think that not all disorders are created equal. I think some of them are very difficult to make relevant in a game. Amnesia was the example that I picked for one that is not really amenable to playing around in an interesting way. The main way that Amnesia can, could come back and be really cool is in a long-running campaign if this thing that brought it on were to come back and then you have like a shocking realization or like even when you suffer an acute episode uh maybe like one thing comes back to you. like one insignificant thing like uh, a certain smell or, like you just can't think about like you, you don't know why you're thinking about this smell or this you know something visual and it's just there in your head but you don't know why it just seems like a good way to like gaslight the players until finally the big shocking reveal where the thing comes back. I'm kind of reminded again, uh, like Christopher Nolan's movie Memento. Like uh, you just have something that reminds you of of something that you don't remember, 
and it's just a puzzle for the player to have to like roleplay unlocking. You start naming an NPC wrong. Like the handler tells your character uh, someone's name is X, but all the other characters believe their name is Y, and it's someone you can't remember, but you've met them before and you don't have no idea where. But uh, maybe we should move back to more generalizations about uh, how to play characters with disorders or with... Yeah, tell me about adaptations, because adaptation to violence comes up a lot in this game. Adaptation to helplessness, quite rarely. Adaptation to violence, what does that mean besides losing charisma and taking the lower results of... Or take and always passing sand checks against violence. I, I think that it's like every... If you're adapted to violence, you're a hammer and everything looks like a nail. That's like one of the interpretations of it. Yeah, narratively, I think what the adaptations are supposed to represent is that if sanity is your conception of how human society is supposed to work, then adaptations are your conception uh, shifting a little bit to include certain experiences. So adaptation to violence is people fight each other, people kill each other. That's just the way of things. It's not worth getting upset about. But how do we distinguish that from how everyone plays RPGs already? Well, that's kind of the thing, yeah. I think adaptation to violence without a disorder backing it up is just kind of... You risk going into murder-hoboism, I guess. When I played D&D the other day, the first thing that one of the characters did... We just like came on this uh, previously undiscovered Uncharted Island. The first thing that the sneaky rogue character does is kill... The first, like, vaguely intelligent, humanoid-like thing. And I was like, well, Jesus Christ, what are we doing out here? We're not here to kill people. We're here on the side. That's what my character would do. No, stop. Get out of that mindset. Murder hoboing is not the way to go. Murder hoboing, in my view, is kind of like how 5th edition ends up being played typically. Whether that's how it's supposed to be or not is, like, a different question. But that's just how, in my experiences, it tends to go a lot of the time. In Delta Green, it shouldn't be the default murder hoboing would have consequences in that you know there's prosecution rules there's the prospect of dying in a shootout with the cops no delta green is delta green is a game about murder lawyering (laughs) well i think murder hoboing is fairly well accounted for in the existing mechanics and the sand rules for violence i think the one that's more slippery is helplessness Uh, just reading from the Agent's Handbook, the essential human impulse is to act. True inactivity is unwholesome to the human psyche. What gets me about that one is a lot of the example sand losses for helplessness are not necessarily things... I get maybe that's the point, not necessarily things to have control over, but they're things like your bonds are hurt, you get fired, you go to jail. Uh, And the adaptation... If you start with an adaptation for helplessness, that is captivity or imprisonment, it's referred to. And it's I just very it's... different from from bad things happening outside of your control to you yourself are incarcerated. Yeah, and it's things like that. I'm just interested that it doesn't include something for an innocent person is killed on your watch and you fail to help them. That's good. Or you survive something that kills everyone else. Yeah, exactly. Because that is, that's our, well, yeah, how do you think you get adapted? Uh, I wonder now if maybe the problem with adaptation that I'm just realizing is that both adaptation to helplessness and adaptation to violence make people harder to run the game for. 
because a character who is adapted to violence is more comfortable just killing things. A character who is adapted to helplessness is more comfortable doing nothing, which we just discussed is not necessarily what you want as a GM. What if it's like, you know, one of your party is adapted to violenceness, another one is adapted to helplessness, and then there's like someone who has neither? So, like, uh, the violent character is, is solving the problem through their preferred method, and the middle character is maybe trying to stop them, and they're like, hey, helpless character, come help me, and they're like, no. And then you've got, like, you've got, like, kind of a inner party drama roleplay thing going. Again, cool narrative situation, not that much fun for the guy who has written on his character sheet, your preferred action is to do nothing. I don't think it's... I guess it's a subtle difference, but I don't think the preferred action is you do nothing. I think you no longer really fear the consequences of an action, so it doesn't stop you from doing your job, but maybe when it comes down to a life-or-death situation, when it might personally have an effect on you. Will, can I ask a question about the button? Okay. Uh, In the button was... I don't have it open in front of me. Was the sand loss from pushing the button from helplessness? Uh, yes. Okay. The, the For context, the button is is Will's award-winning shotgun scenario about a button that lights up when you push it, but it lights up f- about four seconds before you push it, and it's damaging to the human psyche because it reminds you that the universe is completely deterministic, because there's no way to beat it. So in that case, I'd say somebody who gets adapted to helplessness from pushing the button no longer really fears the consequences of their actions. That's a very interesting... Also makes someone more difficult to GM for, but also that's a very interesting interpretation that's quite different from just they don't want to do nothing, uh, and I like that. A person who's adapted to violence doesn't really uh, fear the consequences of their actions either. It's that one uh, really funny video where it's like a cookout, and a little girl comes up to her father, you know, a little Johnny hit me. And the father goes over there and he slaps little Johnny and little Johnny's parents come over and the father slaps them too. And then other guests at the, other guests at the party yes, yes. come up to try and stop this father and he just keeps slapping the shit out of them. And then the police come and he's slapping them all down too. <laughs> that's, that's what it's like to be adapted to violence. I, I like that, that being adapted to helplessness is uh, you, you become sort of detached from, from the from the consequences of your action because i i would i had thought that uh my interpretation had been that since adaptation helplessness produces your your power and your power is supposed to be your you know your force of will adaptation helplessness means you become i guess i guess you would lose some of your impulse control like you'd, you'd be more more uh, amenable to, not, i mean more likely to go along with just doing what somebody else tells you to do or acting on on impulse or something like if someone's adapted to helplessness from being you know, tortured by ISIS for for three years, then i i would uh, i I would play that off as they're they're more likely to do what they are told by you know someone who they perceive as having authority over them. Well, is is being tortured violence or is that helplessness? Oh, tortured is violence. Ca- captivity is helplessness. Sounds like somebody's about to get a double helping. <laughs> you mean to say that being captured and tortured by ISIS is not a, a psychologically uh, healthy uh, event? I do think that that is something that I have complained about in the past about double dipping. I mean, yeah, it's 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 unhealthy for your brain, but also it's essentially the same source being counted twice against you. But that's another discussion for another day. The other question I saw was, how do you rationalize the unnatural? 
Oh, yeah, I guess that's, like, if you succeed at a sand check, so you take the minimum amount of loss, right? I think that there's a couple different ways you can go about this. The way that I hear the most is just denying it, like denying that it's true or that the bad thing is happening. But I wonder if the other half of that might just be you find a way to fit what you're seeing into the framework that you can already understand. Because let's say in this game you encounter an elder thing or some other sentient alien race. And these things are quite scary to look at. On the other hand, if you pass that sand test and you lose like two sanity to it, maybe you already thought there were aliens in the universe. Maybe you already thought that the the Earth had been visited in the ancient geologic past by aliens that had had a profound effect on humanity's development. So it's like understanding the unnatural in a way? It's not understanding is a strong word, although in this case their understanding would be correct because that is canonically what the other things did. Although canon, whatever, who cares? Uh, But yeah, understanding not so much as, as in like you have a literal true understanding, but that you can contextualize it in an existing framework that you already have. So like a a Catholic agent could say, that was a fucking scary ass demon that we just encountered, or a you know, a theosophist agent can be like, wow, that fucking tulpa really tore us up. And the scient- the you know, the atheist materialist agent can say, yo, that was a pretty scary alien that, you know, made itself out of energy. That that people aren't being forced to acknowledge, you know, whatever, the cosmic truth beyond an all-knowing, that they're just saying, hey, we already have a word for this. It's called an alien, or it's called a demon, or it's called a monster. And that in the book is described as what a lot of the cowboys do, that um, the program will invent pseudoscience words for things, whereas the cowboys have no unified understanding of what it is they're encountering, and some of them literally do just believe they're fighting demons and angels. The other way uh, I see people uh, rationalize the unnatural, if they like succeed on their sand check, it, it's just a more mundane event, like... Uh, if it's a color out of space, it's the Aurora Borealis manifesting entirely within your kitchen. But that is fair because there's some stuff in the book about like uh, for the spell, um, the mind, mind swappy spell. Uh, I forget the name of it. Mind swapping spell, transfer consciousness, maybe exchange consciousness. That spell is described as if you pass the sand test or um, if you don't realize what's happening, you just think it's a dissociative episode. Like, it's scary, but not unnatural. It just means that something went wrong in your brain. And I was doing that, I was going really hard on that in another scenario that I wrote called um, Don't You Want Somebody to Love? Where the players kept saying that a brain machine had transferred the consciousness, had, had overwritten an agent with a, with a saved consciousness from a tape. And then the handler was like, okay, you sat a guy down on a machine and zapped his brain with magnets. You probably gave him a fucking aneurysm. He probably thinks he's another person because you caused a blood clot in his brain and now he's dying. Or uh, the example of the elder things. Uh, you pass your sand check, you take the minimum loss or whatever. I mean, like 90% of the ocean's unexplored, dude. Who knows? This could just be like some previously uh, unidentified or unseen uh, giant starfish or whatever. But... On the inverse, how do you uh, how do you play not understanding? Let's say you fail your sand check. What does your character tell themselves about uh, X unnatural event? I'm 
I'm trying more and more when I run games to make big sand losses accompanied by at least some unnatural gain. Because I think that's the risk-reward. If losing sanity means becoming more and more attuned to the cosmic truth of the universe, I think that should be mechanically expressed at least a little bit in terms of getting points that would actually help your character. And there's already mechanics for that, where if you get a temp, you can get unnatural points. I think it's called Insane Insights or Madman's Knowledge. Madman's Knowledge is Bloodborne. Yeah, you get 1d6 and unnatural at the handler's choice. I think one game that handle... I think I, I, I talk about a lot about... Well, a lot. Sometimes about how I like um, the percentile Delta Green a lot better than stuff like Fall Delta Green and Trail of Cthulhu. One thing that Trail and Fall do really well is in those games, Mythos points are much more useful. Because instead of it being, you have a 9% chance to know about anything relevant, it's, you have a point, you can spend that point to understand something. Jake, didn't you have something you were going to say about the projection mechanic in Delta Green? So when you take a big enough sand hit, you can choose to roll a d4, subtract uh, results of the dice from your willpower points, and also from a bond score, and this is known as projecting. It's a way to stave off a temp insanity or save off a breaking point for now. But that's the mechanics. How does it how does it actually go? First of all, just let me say this is a very good mechanic. This is one of the mechanics that I think works really well, both in gameplay terms and narratively. Because this is the only game I know of where you can you have a mechanical representation of something bad happening to you and you just go home and you hit your child. There's no <laughs> other game that would ever do that. Is that how it manifests typically? Like, uh, mm, probably not, because I don't think most players are comfortable with that, and I know I don't know that I would be, but I don't think there's any other game that would even suggest that. How do we measure? Uh, how do we translate the numbers of your bond score to like how healthy your relationship actually is? Excellent question. I think the main difficulty with bonds is that your projection onto a bond is destroying your relationship with them. But it's sort of destroying your relationship at that time internally, like what you think of them, because they don't telepathically know, oh, hey, dad likes me 6% less because he saw Shoggoth. They don't, that's not translating them. But that, but that has to occur later during the home scene, if the character survives. Yeah, you've kind of got to roleplay out how your character lashes out at their loved ones and how that freezes the relationship because it can be lashing out or it can be that your character no longer like identifies with them they wouldn't understand yeah exactly but your question about um what is a relationship at each different level that that hypothetically would be something that would be good to just make a little table of like your bond here's an example of a bond at two or six or ten most of the time people know what a strained relationship is like they know that if you've got three in a relationship with somebody it's because they're not typically very happy with you but they can't get rid of you and you can't get rid of them because of some other reason so it's someone that hurts you deeply but well the thing about most abusive relationships is the key there is the word relationship where even if someone is constantly living in fear of the other person they still have moments where that to them justify carrying on. And so that's what a bond at like three or four is probably. But I know that the devs have been asked this question specifically and said that bond damage is not necessarily just meant to represent abusive actions. So that's just one example. 
I think it'd be cool if someone were to draft up a table of like they can give us examples of like loss from sanity and helplessness and stuff like that. I think it'd be cool to see a table of like what a bond score might look like, but probably as a percentage since it's capped by uh, typically capped by like your charisma. That's a good question. Is someone who has six charisma or three charisma actually incapable of forming a meaningful relationship with other human beings? Or or are their relationships qualitatively worse? Is a guy with a 10, with 10 charisma, is his 10 bond same as the six charisma bond of a guy with six charisma? Or is the guy with six charisma always going to have worse ones? I think it's like they're at maximum capacity, so regardless, like that's the best it's going to get for him. That's the best it's going to get, but I'm, I'm saying is it graded on a curve or is it the absolute value that matters? This is really like theory crafting stuff. I think that the tape, the type of table that you're that we were talking about, uh, it's something that I think most people probably don't need because it's like something that you could hypothetically just think of yourself. But it's great. It would be good anyways because uh, examples are very important for people who have not played this game before and are not sure how the mechanics are supposed to work or what they're supposed to represent. Because I've had people just misinterpret what the bond rules are supposed to be for. And it's because, it, and, and if they had maybe uh, an example of some kind, which there, there's there's an example of play, I think, in the book, but not so much like here's what here's what it means when you have one point left with somebody. Well, narratively, once you're inside that D4 range, that means that bond could really break at any time. That's the good part, yeah, is that then you have to actually start thinking seriously about projection and what the consequences are. Is your bond score capped by charisma? Yes. It is. Your sanity is not capped by your power, but your bond are capped by your charisma. Sanity is only capped by unnatural. There's also, to go back to disorders, there's kind of a sister mechanic to projection called repression, which you do the same D4 and then you lose from one of your bonds and your willpower. But then you make a sand test to see if you can stave off the effects of a temporary insanity or I really don't like the repression mechanics because it's essentially to go from source of sand loss to repression is four die rolls. It is the initial sand test. It is a follow-up sand test to see if the disorder activates. It is a D4 roll after you choose to repress and it is another sand test to see if the repression is successful. So you've essentially made a sand test three times in a row. You've rolled a D4 which may not even have any effect. And I'm here thinking, this mechanic is not good. The projection mechanics is really good. How do we unify the two so that we don't have to have a guy sit there and make three sand tests to see if his disorder activates and what he can do about it? I would just strip out that second sand test to see if the disorder activates. I would just say, at the handler's discretion, you lose sand and or one of your disorders activates. It is an interesting dilemma because many of the disorders are disorders that are activated by specific stimuli. So if you get the one that makes you afraid of the loud noises or you get PTSD or something that has a specific stimuli associated with it, fine. We can measure, you know, if, if you've got PTSD and the gunfight starts, that's probably going to gonna, gonna do it for you if, if that is indeed where you got it in the first place however let's say that your guy has uh something a little less alcoholism what disorder what stimuli activate your alcoholism well it could be stress but 
that's not necessarily something that shows up in the game world in the same way to like get the shakes or get DTs or whatever. So how, if we are going with this house rule to say disorders activate when you lose sanity from something that is appropriate to disorder, how do you bring stuff like alcoholism or amnesia into the game world when they don't necessarily have a defined stimuli in the same way that some of these other guys do? I would, my first reaction is kind of merge that with the temp mechanic. Like if you lose five San and you're addicted to alcohol, the handler says, well, you can't choose your temp now. You've got to run out of here and find a bar to forget about all this. Perhaps, but also that then means that disorders are no, are now no worse for you than just the regular old temp mechanics. Because if a disorder activates on a loss of five San or more, then your essential disorders is neg 20 to all actions while it's active. Whereas a temporary is you have no control whatsoever. So essentially getting disorders in this case would be good for you. So what if instead of it being five sanity, we lowered the threshold a bit, a, a regular, a, a temp is five and a disorder is like two or three. Yeah. I like that. I'll go with two. Uh, it also, it still means that you're only getting it on the bigger stimuli, but it is less of kind of a kludge roll over and over again situation. And it means that you don't need the rules for repression because you can just use the rules for normal projection. And if the threshold is lower, that makes projection comparatively more expensive because you could be dropping four off a bond to cancel out a two sand loss. So it makes it comparatively more expensive to project while not requiring any more mechanics than are already in the game. I I think that a uh, way to get around this is just ask the player, hey, would this trigger your PTSD? Hey, do you feel like you need a drink right now? You know, just try to get them to uh, play to fall by themselves to where you don't have to uh, house rule it or to do three sand rolls in a row. Because it's fun to play falling down. When, uh, when Agent Clark runs off into the woods because he can't deal with what's going on right now, Someone should go give chase to him to try and bring him back, or they have to decide, you know, do I want to go find Clark, or do I want to finish the mission? It's fun to throw those sorts of complications in. I guess the best way to explain the way that I run games, I, it's, I guess, hmm. I don't know where to start. Uh, when I design scenarios, I typically have things that I envision like a grand finale at the end, which isn't always necessary for scenarios. Um, but I, I like to think of things all boiling down to like one big event at the end, and every other step along the way is a method for the players to come up with their own perceptions about what the the big event at the end might be or like what approach they can take or what attitudes they might have. So like you have your clues and then you have your like flavor clues where people come with the interpretation. That's typically how I run like investigative style scenarios, which are my favorite style. But, but how I view Delta Green is probably different than that. Uh, for me, Delta Green is that sort of... Uh, Hey, what if criminals could do, like, really bad stuff? We should stop them from doing really really bad stuff. It's funny, because for me, it's, hey, what if law enforcement could do really bad stuff? They should do it. 
No, I, I guess, you know, what's the line between, or, or where will they stop? Where will the agents stop? At what point do the agents become more evil than the thing that they're fighting? Yeah, uh, Chief, I do tend to like your scenarios. I think that you said that you definitely design with the end in mind. Yes, I envision like a big fun, if, if not fun, definitely like a stressful thing for people to have to play through. A conclusion is good, and I know that um, the thing that you have been finding in your scenarios is that the beginning is often the harder part because the hook that you have set up doesn't really grab all the players in, this, in the way that you thought it would. Or they'll argue, they'll argue for like 30 minutes about how to start something, even though like I present them like, hey, here's like an easy way in. Yeah, yeah, be, be, writing beginnings is definitely hard. I suppose to me it's kind of different. My process is basically I write down a bunch of hooks, then I take the ones I like and might actually lead to a fun, good scenario. And then I uh, try to write that scenario out. But my problem is procrastination. So often by the time my game comes around, I will not have finished my scenario. And I'm sure, Melon, since you've been in a lot of my scenarios, you can talk about this. I think that what I would say, Dole, is that you have a tendency to design with you. You, from from my view, it's backwards. I know everything. People do their things differently. When you when you create stuff, it's I have a monster that I like. How do I use it? Or I have I want to write a scenario about this mythos concept. And I think that you would be well served by taking a gameplay first approach instead. My suggestions are, and this is my suggestion for everybody because I think everyone can do better at this. I know I can certainly do better at this. Is think about the player experience. Think about what. Not, not even just trying to think about, you know, anticipating their movements, but what can they do in this situation? What can they do with this information? Not what will they do, but what can they do? You know, Heron, I'm very interested to know your opinion about how you run scenarios, because every one of your scenarios you I've played in, I've liked a lot. Well, thank you. Uh, I feel like I feel like there's sort of a disconnect between the kind of games I want to run and the kind of games I end up running. So like I said, I really got into... Delta Green for the Lovecraftian aspect, for more the the horror and the weird fiction side of things, and that's sort of what I that's what I want to try and achieve, but I'm not sure I'm there yet. I feel like uh, to not on two things that have already been said. I feel like what I want is to make scenarios where the middle is the most interesting part, where you're kind of knee deep in the problem, and there are multiple directions you can go in, and the players kind of explore that for a little bit but I'm not always sure I have the strongest hook and so I end up sending players on one direction specifically and then the other thing is I feel like sometimes when I use combat it's just not very interesting it's just because I've run out of other ideas for things the players can do and I'm not sure how to proceed with the scenario yeah if I remember from the first scenario I played with you you said that you had characters that you just totally forgot to introduce to us because you sent us on this one line of questioning. Uh, it wasn't that I forgot to introduce them to you, if I'm remembering this. There was never an opportunity. Yeah, you guys just followed up uh, a different line of clues, which it was, wasn't bad. It's just as I'm as I write and run scenarios, I realize that's something I, I like is coming up with... Uh, interesting NPCs and letting the players talk to them a little bit. But I feel like I, even when I do that successfully, I feel like sometimes I make the error of kind of 
concealing information from players that they should really just be given. Here's something about that. Uh, I watched a video on the Alexandrian about scenario design, which we might have talked about, by Sandy Peterson, the guy who invented the Call of Cthulhu game originally. And he was saying that one thing that you need to be careful of with NPCs giving the players information is that once the players have an NPC in front of them, they think knows anything, they're going to hammer that NPC with every possible question under the sun. And so you need to either have a way, you need to have some way of breaking off that conversation because otherwise you're going to be there all night. Yeah, and I had, with the last scenario I ran, I I wasn't consciously doing that, I guess, but I had a couple of NPCs who were all at odds, so they would lie to you, not all the time, but in small ways to try and get you to do what they wanted. But like I said, that scenario didn't really go the direction I was thinking of, so NPC interaction didn't come up a whole lot. I think the problem you're, run- you're running into is that... Uh, you write these scenarios that are big constellations with lots of moving parts and lots of connections between them. But when people play RPGs, I know that I do this, people are very reluctant to give up on the line of questioning that they're on because if you're an hour or two hours into a scenario and you give up on something and you go pursue a different route, that can feel like starting over. And people don't want to do that. They want to chase down the end of the trail that they're on. And what that means is that if you write a snare that has lots of different ways to approach it, most of it's just going to end up getting ignored because people are just going to drill down on whatever they have in front of them rather than it pulling at anything, you know, on the side. So the question is, you know, ways to, how do we incorporate all that other stuff that the players aren't pursuing into this scenario? Or do we? Do we just accept that we're not going to use some of our content and we're going to have to just make do with uh, the the stuff that they are chasing after. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I guess my reaction would be maybe the NPCs are more active. Like, they don't wait to act until the players get in touch with them. Like, kind of force the NPCs to get in their way. And the NPC, like, the players will figure out what their deal is. I'm not really sure. I really like how that played out in a scenario that I think we can talk about a little more than usual because... You guys on the other side of the uh, whatever device you're listening on can actually go read it, and that would be Black Mayonnaise, because I really liked how your NPCs interacted with each other and how that was central to more central to the plot than anything. Yeah, the thing that I really liked about that scenario is that it was a scenario where there was lots of NPCs interacting with each other, but it was all done in ways that made it visible to the players. Because the central problem with anything happening behind the scenes with NPCs is that... Uh, might as well not even be there if there's no way for the players to to observe it or to get the output of it. But that scenario was one where there was a way to learn what was going on. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate uh, what Will said at the end of that scenario, which was there was always something to do. Like, we, it never felt like we were spinning our wheels. We might want to link Black Mayonnaise in the uh, show description just so you guys can read it. Maybe we all link one that's emblematic of our design philosophies. I, I think maybe we kind of zoomed in a little bit when we were talking here. Uh, maybe we could zoom out a little bit and talk about our the way we approach Delta Green like as a whole. Because uh, like in the show notes, it says uh, Kevin thinks it's like cop game where there's bad stuff and people go insane. And Melon does like kind of pulpy, uh, weird science type stuff. 
What do y'all think about that? Should we zoom out? So I guess when I approach uh, running Delta Green, the two things I try to shoot for are uh, the first one would be weirdness or dread or paranoia, which is I feel the thing I need to work on the most. And it's just the sense that there are things about this this world that can never be explained. Just going back to the idea of cosmic horror that you're never going to fully understand this stuff. The world just doesn't react or act in ways we can fully comprehend. Like there's not really reason in Black Mayonnaise why that one experiment produced the result it did. It just produced a horrible thing and now people are suffering for it. And the other thing is kind of uh, a lot of people, a lot of the NPCs are out for number one. They aren't really looking out for each other. They aren't looking out for society or any kind of institution. Like a big part of what it feels like is that we're living through the pre-apocalypse. And so kind of the social contract is breaking down. And that's what moves a lot of the NPCs. I can I can see how that's emblematic of uh, of what you think Delta Green is. That's one of the things on the back of a bunch of the products is like, welcome to the apocalypse. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of, you know, this whole, I don't want to get into the whole temporal Cold War aspect, but that's almost what, like, like what the Yogor want is all of this depraved cruelty. I guess, yeah, and that goes back to the Call of Cthulhu, where just once he wakes up, uh, everybody's mind is going to be so blasted by his psychic powers that they're just going to be living like beasts. And that, for me, that's really what it comes down to, is that everything we have is so fragile, and no matter how tightly you grip it, it's going to slip away. Melon, what do you think, like, on a macro level? Uh, how do you feel about the game and the uh, way you approach it? I think the Delta Green is my favorite RPG. It's my favorite RPG, and I definitely don't run it, I think, the way that developers want people to run it. Because whenever I hear them talk about it, I think that's not what I'm going to do. Because they're, the, the official philosophy is something uh, that's very serious, that's very understated, spends a lot of time on the build-up, spends a lot of time on the consequences of people's actions, and on the mundane details and how they're affected by the, by the brush with the unnatural. I just don't have the patience for any of that shit. You listed all of the things that they say exactly what to do. Yeah, I take that and I say, maybe instead of that, I'm going to do something that people are going to remember. Maybe I'm going to do, I mean, I, I don't want to set it up as an opposition to their thing, because I think their thing's really cool, but I don't have the patience for it. And when I run a game, I want it to be a game. I, I used the phrase earlier, running a game, like your game is a bowl of cereal, and my cereal is entirely marshmallows. Maybe you get sick of all marshmallows after a while, but the first time you put them in your mouth, you think, wow, this is all high points. There's no, there's no stretch where it's just, I guess, I guess my, my thinking is I want to compress the good stuff down as much as possible until I've created something that trims out all the fat and is just the parts that people are going to get, are going to think are fun and remember. Because my thinking is RPG sessions are a scarce resource and need to be spent only on the things that are most worthy of our attention. And I know that that's not a philosophy that people are going to like if they want to do, like, Ellen Dill keeps talking about how, oh, we should spend a whole session on fabricating evidence for a trial, or we should spend a whole, a whole session on stealing drug money to pay for something. Because his thing is that this is a piece of gritty spy fiction 
that occurs in a real world with those consequences for your actions. And my thinking is the opposite of that, that it's an RPG where any kind of crazy shit can happen and that stuff needs to be at the forefront. And I understand that if I was running a campaign game instead of a series of one-shots that people might share characters across, that there'd be more time for all of the the usual stuff. But yeah, I guess I guess the way the best analogy for the way I do things is that every game of mine is like a convention scenario where it's designed to be flashy, to have a strong hook that people are going to remember, to make it a memorable experience. Cuz I've talked I've talked and so to have lots of big flashy set pieces, stuff like that. So it's very loud, it's very pulpy. It's probably not the way the game is supposed to be run. And I'm not saying, because I know that, that people like to meme about that guy who had Delta Green set on a helicarrier or whatever. I'm not talking about that. You can still have it be, like, a bunch of guys working out of a basement with, you know, trying to scrape up enough scraps of aluminum to sell for for money to buy bullets or whatever what the fuck ever. That's fine. That's that's great. That's a, that's a part of the experience. Because there's nothing that annoys me more than the players hearing anything interesting and then immediately running to the handler to suck all the fun out of the game. I remember you've had a couple scenarios where we've been looking over the CVs of different academics and using our skills to try and figure out, is this person who demands respect? Is this uh, a complete novice in the field? Or is this even someone who's just posing as uh, someone in this field? So there are pretty like lo-fi elements of your games too, but they are matched by big highs too. Oh, of course. But what I'm what I'm trying to do there too is just because something has to be you know I keep using the phrase all high points or all marshmallows or whatever that doesn't mean it has to be all guns and action like you can you can have all this stuff and, but but I, I I'm very consciously trying to include a role for not not fighting characters in in all the stuff that I do now or if it is a scenario that's a bug hunt that's about fighting I try to signpost that clearly at the start that. This is not an adventure that you should go into expecting to use an art skill or to use a, a, a anthropology, archaeology, stuff like that. I think that the way that you uh, run games, Millen, it's uh, reflective of how versatile Delta Green is because it can be, you know, as Heron mentioned about, you know, we're living out the apocalypse, and uh, it, but it can also be, hey, look at this kooky weird shit, which is exciting. The kooky weird shit is exciting. Yeah, I appreciate your focus on the gameplay side of things, since what really draws me is sort of the the narrative and thematic elements of it. Like, as someone who does really want to play it the way all the devs say it should be played, I really appreciate being exposed to more thoughts about, okay, how do I make a fun game that people are going to want to play more of? Heron, I like your scenarios a whole lot because they take the more cerebral side of things and make it not boring. The risk of any kind of more intellectual or understated scenario is that the players will be bored or will not care. Dole, what about you? What is your attitude towards Delta Green as a whole and how it uh, reflects in the way that you run games? You know, I've been trying to get a handle on it for a while since we've been talking about the uh, Melon and uh, Heron, and it really hasn't been coming to me. But I think what I would like to do with my scenarios is a lot of in line with what the devs would like it to be, which is the unnatural in small amounts makes it all the more better 
but I don't think I can get an amazing handle on how I run games and what my ideas on Delta Green are because I haven't really run that many games. I think you play into the uh, conspiratorial side of things a lot. I agree with that. Yeah, I think I think that's a lot about what's interesting, especially with old Delta Green, was all the conspiracy shit that goes on. Well, I'm also thinking of... I forget the title of it. It was one of your contest scenarios set where we were going through the bayou, trying to find all green bucks. Statues in the mist. Yeah, statues in the mist. And so what we found at the end of that, I think I think your style kind of trends towards very Lovecraftian between diving into the mythos and the conspiratorial angle on things. There's a lot going on with kind of the, the horrible revolution and the weight of that. I think that my macro view of uh, Delta Green and just Lovecraftian games in general. It's kind of like, be careful what you wish for, and also uh, people using or abusing things that they don't understand. That's what I like to write about. Or if it's not that, then it's people becoming a victim because of things they don't understand. Because in the Lovecraftian sense of things, there's... What's that one really long quote? It's at the beginning of the... Hold on. It's at the beginning of the Handler's Guide. We are ticks boiling on a moat on a boat in a sea of nothing, and we will no more take to the stars than we will cure the ills that destroy us. Our existence is a clock winding down. When the hour strikes, entities with true consequence will sweep us away with an unconscious flick, scouring the globe clean for their limitless, infinite plans. Nah, that's uh, it's close, but the one I had in mind was the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. Humans are never meant to understand, but that's not going to stop us from trying uh, to to grasp the unnatural, to weaponize it, to turn it into science for our own benefit, which is what Majestic 12 did. It's what the program does now with March Tech. It's what everyday people can do if they, they have a know-how how to reverse engineer something or to, to work something to their advantage. But the other part, be careful what you wish for. I remember, I think Shane Ivey said that, that that was one of the tenets of uh, Delta Green. Just be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. Because uh, part of Delta Green, in the conspiratorial angle of it all, players can have everything that they want to have. And how far will they go? You know, What will they use in order to achieve their objectives? That was episode 9 of The Green Box. If you like what you heard or want to share some mad insights, follow us on Twitter at 9mmretirement. Find us on Facebook, The Green Box. Check out our subreddit, slash r, night at the opera. And come play Delta Green with us on our Discord server. Links are below in the description. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay frosty.